Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. We got in the fourth chapter. <clears throat> we got down through verse 5. And we talked about in verse 5, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We'll talk about that again in a little bit. <clears throat> and we, you know, in this chapter we have the open door and the vision of the throne in verses 1 through 3. Then we had the 24 elders in verse 4. And then verse 5, we had the description of that throne. And then in verse 6 now, we're going to find uh, uh, the vision. Uh, no, in verse 6, we're going to have, in verses 6 through 11, we're going to have the four living creatures and the great praise and worship all in the next, uh, the remainder of the verses. But we'll deal with them in detail. So if you look at verse 5, the fourth chapter, verse 5, remember we're studying the things after the church is taken up into heaven. By the way, a better term is after the saints are taken up into heaven because it will not be a church till it's taken to heaven. And sometimes just say the church is gone, that means a universal church, and we believe in local congregations. And so it really means all the saints are gone, and then when they're assembled in heaven, there'll be a glorified church. A church is a called out assembly. And when, when all the saints are called out of this earth into heaven, it'll be called out, won't it? And it'll be assembled. But until then, it's not assembled. It's, uh, the, the saints are all over the world. In verse uh, 6, it says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass likened to crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, there's a lot of things that need to be... Uh, uh, pointed out when we're studying this passage of Scripture. If you notice verse 6 as well as verse 8 says, and the four beasts. In the first part of verse 8, look at your Bible. So we're talking about the four beasts in verse 6 and the four beasts in verse 8. But before we get to that, let's look at this thought in verse 6 of the sea of glass. There's a sea of glass likened to crystal. What does this sea speak of? It is really a laver. It's a place for washing. And you take it from the Old Testament, there was a laver to wash in, or a basin that uh, had water in it to wash. And then there was a special sea, or a larger area, for the priests to wash. Let me give you the uh, Scripture reference. Look in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 38 and 39. If you will, and then I'll give you another one. First Kings seven thirty-eight and thirty-nine. Now this is when uh, Solomon built the temple. In verse thirty-eight, it says, "Then made he ten labors, ten labors of brass. One labor contained forty baths, and every labor was four cubits. And upon every one of these, the ten bases, uh, a one labor. And he put five bases on the right side of the house, and five on the left side of the house. Now look at the last part of verse thirty-nine." And he set the sea on the right side of the house eastward over against the south. It says the sea. Now then, if you look in, and I'll read it for you. And this interprets what that sea was for. Second Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 6 says, and it's recording the same thing but in different words, and being more specific as to the use of it. It says in verse 6, this is the key verse really. He made also ten lavers and put five on the right hand and five on the left hand to wash in them. 
the labor or the, the water or the basin was to wash in. Now, such things as they offered for the burnt offering, they washed in them. So this was the, for the work of the burnt offering. They cleansed this, uh, the material for that or the flesh for that. Now then, but the sea was for the priests to wash in. The sea was for the priest to wash in. Now turn back to Revelation, chapter 4, verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now then, this sea was crystallized. It was, it was solidified. And we find some information about that in the 15th chapter, verse 2. Again, we run across the same thought. Of Revelation 15, verse 2. It says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now, this was the element of Christian or the people that had overcome during the tribulation period, they were standing on the sea of glass. Now this labor is typical and symbolical of the Word of God. The Bible says the washing of water by the Word. The priest washed in it in the Old Testament for cleansing. Wherewith shall a man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy Word. So the cleansing of water here is representing the Word of God. And so, after they were cleansed, they could stand solidly upon that sea of glass or upon the Word of God that was uh, beneficial for their cleansing previous. But now, it was there's no need for cleansing now because they were already cleansed. And so, they just stood firm upon that which was before a cleansing element for them. Now then, in chapter 4, verse 6, look again. I think that's enough about that. There's more detail about the sea of glass, but I think you'll see that it's solidified. It was clear. It was uh, likened to crystal, or it was crystallized or solidified. Now no longer do we need to wash. When we get to heaven, the cleansing will be over, will it not? And we'll show that we've stood on the Word of God. And those tribulation saints that we spoke of in 15 verse 2 were standing upon the Word of God, having already been saved and uh, overcome through the Word of God and through their testimony. Now then, look at verse 6 again. Hold your place in Revelation 4, verse 6. It says, In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Four beasts. Now then, the word really here is living creatures. They're not beasts like you find over in uh, Revelation 13, where you have the two beasts that are wicked beasts. These, the living creatures here, these two, this, when you find it in verse 6 and verse 8, these four beasts, living creatures is a translation of the Greek word Z-O-A. Now in chapter 13, the two beasts, the Greek word is T-H-E-R-I-O-N. So it's a different word for beast. You have the word beast here, but you have it also in Revelation 13, which is speaking of the two beasts, one of them being the Antichrist, and one of them being the political head that rises up uh, that's corrupt and wicked. So it's altogether different. These beasts here are living creatures. These are heavenly creatures. They're not wicked. They're not mean. 
So that's why you have a difference in the word, even though here in our English translation, you have the word beast. And when you study it, you'll find that they're living creatures. Now, these living creatures, Z-O-A in the Greek, in chapter 4 are not brutes like those in chapter 13, but they're altogether different. These creatures in Ezekiel's description are almost identical. In Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 20, it says, this is the living... Listen carefully. You don't have time to turn to all these references, but if you'll just listen and you need those references later, or if you want to jot them down and look at them later and save turning, that's fine with me. I want you to get the message. And if you can get the message better by paying attention to me and just jotting down a verse and then studying it later, that's good because sometimes I take you too fast and yet we're covering very little ground, you can see, as far as verses are concerned. So, uh, Ezekiel 10 verse 20 says, This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew that they were the cherubims. So, Ezekiel identifies these beasts or these living creatures as cherubims. Now then, furthermore, Ezekiel names these living creatures cherubim, and this is an order of angelic beings. There are four cherubim in Ezekiel indicating their relationship to the world. And here in Revelation, we find that there are four that are spoken of. Look, these four beasts, look at verse 7. You have your passage? The first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as, as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. You see how they're represented? These living creatures, one was like a lion. The other was like a calf. The other was as a man. And then the fourth was like a flying eagle. Lion for supremacy and strength. A calf or an ox for service. And a man, the highest of God's intelligence. And then a flying eagle, the one that soars to the heights. There are so many meanings that we could give you. Those four cherubim in Ezekiel indicating their relationship to the world if you go back in the book of Ezekiel. But here in Revelation... Animate creation is represented by these living creatures in these four faces. Man, as we said, is the highest of God's created beings. The calf is a symbol of domestic animal life. The lion is representation of untamed animals. And the flying eagle is a picture of the fowls of heavens. Demonstrate the purposes of God in created life. By the way, if you want to go back and study these, you'll find that they correspond with Christ's representation of Himself to us in the four Gospels. The lion is what? The king. In the Gospel of Matthew, Christ comes as king. Where is He that is born king of the Jews? And in Mark's Gospel, you find Christ as God's servant. And that is represented, the ox represents a beast of burden and a servant. And then uh, in Luke's Gospel, you have Christ as the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And then in John's Gospel, you have uh, the height of the uh, divinity. John does not begin with the birth of Christ or the, the genealogy of Christ. 
and the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin with. But he begins, begins this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He sourced to heights theologically that none of us can understand unless we get into the Word of God. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. He doesn't start with, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and laid in a manger, does he? And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So you see the, the representations there, if you would care to. These cherubims are God's agents in implementing His degrees of His creation. And the numerous eyes indicate spiritual perception. Notice, it says in verse uh, 6, Four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, these eyes represent spiritual perception and insight. And knowledge. And thus this heavenly scene depicts angelic messengers and the redeemed. We saw those redeemed in what? The 24 elders represented the redeemed of the Old and New Testament. The living creatures represent uh, God's uh, insight to all that goes on. And so you have God's messengers, the heavenly angelic creatures and, and the redeemed who are resurrected human beings, all worshiping and honoring and extolling God. You have them all there in the presence of God before the throne. So there's not only going to be the redeemed before the throne of God, but there's going to be the great angelic company. And when we get over into the fifth chapter, you're going to find the angels and men both praising God. And the 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 elders will fall down and worship where represent the redeemed. The angels are seen as praising God and saying, and you find the redeemed are singing the song of redemption. So this is kind of escalating as we go along in reading and studying these verses. Now let's look at uh, verse 8 again. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they and they were full of eyes within. Now we already spoke about their eyes, but what about the six wings? How does this connect us with the Old Testament and what, what does it mean? We see also in the book of Isaiah that those that had six wings were seraphim, they were heavenly creatures. So we have a lot of representation here in the that it ties us when within the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Isaiah, and I'll read it to you in just a moment, anticipate this. So, you have both of these things that we see in these living creatures that we have a foundation for in the Old Testament to show us what they mean. Didn't we say earlier when we began to teach that God sent and signified, He signified or signified, He gave us these things in signs and figures, and symbols. And we find the symbolic meaning uh, brought out by understanding the Old Testament. Now then, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, in the, year that, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. You have a throne there. Isaiah sees a throne. John saw a throne. And Isaiah sees a throne. It says, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. 
Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. Isn't that what we find? That these four beasts or these living creatures had six wings. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. With these six wings, he took two wings, they covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Activity. By the way, here's a, here's a good thought. I hope you don't mind me taking many lessons on this revelation. Because there's, there's so many things I, I just cannot pass over. Here's a thought. When you cover your face, and then when you cover your feet, both head and feet, this is worship. This is standing in awe in the presence of God. But then with twain they did fly. There's twice as much importance placed upon worship first and then activity. Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. You see see the way it comes out? He doesn't say, Thou shalt serve the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou worship. You can't serve until you worship. And worship takes the first place in the presence of God. If we cannot worship, and then we cannot serve. And so, these two, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Fly symbolizes activity or service. So, even in Isaiah... And, and let's go on and see what they cry. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, And one cried unto another. By the way, you can jot down these verses. Just put down Ezekiel 10, verse 20. Ezekiel 1, verse 10, I believe it is. It'll give you another reference. And then, I didn't even cover that one. And Isaiah chapter 6, and take the first several verses. Okay. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, it says, One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what Isaiah responded when he saw uh, these, uh, this heavenly scene. Now back in the book of Revelation. And hold your place there for sure. Chapter 4. Now verse 8 again. We find a lot of similarity. And the four beasts, or these living creatures, or these cherubim, if you'll call them, or the seraphim in Isaiah. And we don't know the difference. They're heavenly beings. Some have tried to distinguish between cherubim and seraphim. And it's a very fine line of distinction. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying that you see here heavenly creatures or living creatures. But follow this down. And the four beasts had each one of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not, look, they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Now then, John adds here in Revelation, which was and is and is to come. The past, the present, and the future. Which was, God has always been. And He is, John says, and He is to come. So we take in the whole scope of God from the beginning. In the beginning, 
And to the end of all things. Jesus says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The first and the last, right? Alright, now notice what it says. In verse 9, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, these are these living creatures, when they give honor, glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him. That liveth forever and ever. They fall down and worship. So the 24 elders are seen worshiping. The living creatures are seen, seen giving glory and honor and thanks in verse 9. Now then verse 10, it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever. Now look, the last part, of it, and cast their crowns before the throne. What do they do? They're crowned. Now, if you look back in verse uh, 4, just glance back to verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. We talk about the crowns of the redeemed, did we not, earlier? And we gave you the incorruptible crown, the crown of glory, the crown of rejoicing, and all of these various crowns. Uh, there were five of them. And so these elders, they've been crowned. And so they have crowns, and they take these crowns off, and they cast them down. Look, they're crowned before the throne, and we'll get what they say in a moment. But what do they do? They have crowns that they cast down. Don't we even have a song like that, Casting Down Your Golden Crowns? Upon the crystal sea, casting down your golden crowns. The believer's crowns will be... In other words, what it's saying is that the redeemed, even in glory, will say, we're not worthy to wear these crowns. The Lord gave them to us and we're going to present them to Him. We're going to lay them down before the Lord. Because it's only by grace that we receive crowns and this honor that the Lord has bestowed upon us. And then what are they going to say? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. They cast their crowns down. They said, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. In chapter 4 here, we see God the Father, basically. But let's not forget that when we see God the Father, we see God the Son. And we see God the Holy Spirit. And even when we're studying the Bible, it's hard to just separate completely one from the other. It's hard to do that. Someone says, is this God the Father or is this Jesus? Well, really, it is God the Father is seen more here under this symbol in chapter 4. And when we get to chapter 5, we see God the Son under the form of the Lamb. And yet we know the things that are attributed here to God the Father. God the Father Himself contributes, or attributes, I should say, attributes those things to His Son. You see, God is the Creator of all things. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the word uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we say God created. But when God speaks of His creation, He says the Son is the creator of all things. So He 
he says that we jointly work together. And so he attributes to the, the work to his son. So when we say God created, we don't mean that he created without the son. When we say the son created, we don't say that he did it without the command and with the approval of the father. If, if I go out here and uh, I take a contract on building a house and I have my son and I've got the contract on it and uh, my son does all the work and then he has other people that help in building it. Someone's come along and say, Brother Joyce built my house. Well, maybe I did, but maybe I didn't. Maybe someone else did the work. See what I mean? But I worked in conjunction also. Even though someone else did the actual labor, I was a contractor. There are many contractors contract a house and say, I'll build so-and-so's house, and they never picked up a hammer, drove a nail, sawed a board. They never did anything. Except they had the paperwork and they collected the money. That's the way that went. And I've been there, some of you have. In fact, most of you are familiar with what I'm talking about. But God, you know what God says about the creations? He says, under the sun, He saith, thy throne, in Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father speaking to the Son, and it's in the psalm, it's, record, it's, a, it's a reference to one of the psalms. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, but, but unto the Son, He saith, God saith, thy throne, O God, He says, to the Son, your throne is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And he says to the Son, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee, the Son of God, with the oil of gladness, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And then this verse. And he says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. You see, God the Father says that He laid that the Son laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of His hands. And we could go on and on and quote the rest of that, but there's no need. That's the point I wanted to make. So He's the head of creation. John chapter one tells us the same thing, doesn't He? All right, let me give you something. As we look at this last verse in in uh, uh, Revelation four, verse eleven, look at it. The last verse in this fourth chapter. Thou art worthy, O Lord, these elders, these redeemed, the ones that have the crown, says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, <coughs> to receive glory and honor and power. Now I want you to notice. <coughs> for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. See, the Bible says God created all things for Himself. Did you know you and I belong to God and we're, we're His reward? We're His inheritance? Doesn't it make you kind of special to know that we are His inheritance as well as God being our inheritance? God says, I count my, those people, my people are my inheritance. Look back in the book of Ephesians quickly. Chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this with your own eyes. <clears throat> Verse 18. It says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
Paul is, is speaking to the church of Ephesus, the Ephesians, one of the churches that Jesus recognized in the book of Revelation. He says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance? God's inheritance. Of His inheritance in the saints. Peter tells us that we're begotten again to a lively hope. Now listen, 1 Peter chapter 1, listen carefully. Unto an inheritance that's incorruptible and undeviled, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Read to be revealed in the last time. Okay. Peter says that we have an inheritance that's laid up for us. And Paul says here in Ephesians 1 verse 18, that we're His inheritance, of His inheritance in the saints. So, we not only inherit an incorruptible inheritance, undefiled, that fadeth not away, but God inherits us. And He tells us that we're His portion and we're His people. You and I, sometimes when we think of our, our inheritance, we think of what God has done for us, how great and wonderful it is. And yet we cannot comprehend the fact that you and I, as redeemed by the blood of Christ, are very special to God. He says, they're my special, peculiar people. He says, you not, have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. God says, you're mine. He not only belongs to us, but we belong to Him. And I love that union and that relationship. <coughs> Can we ever even get into our minds that we mean something to God? If we did, we'd try to mean more, wouldn't we? We'd try to do better. If we knew that we... If we just get into our little minds that we really mean something to the Lord. Alright, look at this. I want you to notice verse 11 again. I have one or two things to say and we'll try to hurry on. It says, uh, For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, remember the... The living creatures, in verse 9, were giving thanks and glory and honor. And here the four and twenty beasts, in verse 10. And then they're casting down their crowns, in verse 10. And they're worshiping the Lord, in verse 10 it says, And worship Him that liveth forever and ever. And they're worshiping Him, not because, not the God of evolution, but the God of creation. You know, wouldn't it be a peculiar thing if this verse said, Lord, we thank Thee that You've involved us from... A tadpole to a, a frog to a fish to a monkey that hung by his tail in a tree. And finally we stood upright and walked and were men. We thank Thee for Thy wonderful uh, pattern and uh, way of evolution. No, it says because You've created us. They worship God of the God of creation. And I believe that Man has always been a man. Some people may believe otherwise. I realize he may have been a little more crude in the old days than he is now. I don't know, though. Looks like we're going the other direction, doesn't it? Some people have said, you believe in evolution? Well, I wonder about devolution. People have become more devilish and more wicked. And by the way, Paul tells uh, uh, Timothy, he says, wicked men and seducers shall wax what? Worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Now then, the only answer for this sinful, ungodly world 
is for God to change individuals in it, and then for the Lord to come and take us to a place and to and uh, into eternity where we'll have a better world than we have now. We have a terrible mess to clean up in this world. Not only as far as the environment and everything around us is concerned. You see, I saw just on the news just before I came up here where the, the fire ants are coming in and taking over. And they're having a big problem out in California where there's certain uh, certain kind of a beetle that's come in and they were cutting trees down. It may have been up there in Wisconsin, Michigan somewhere. And they were just... Or, uh, or uh, Minnesota or wherever, and they were just whacking these beautiful trees down because they was trying to stop the infestation that was brought over by some kind of a bug. And showed great big trees, and you could see all the bark was gone, holes all through them. And one lady remarked, says, I just hate to see them cut all these trees down, but they had to do something. Keep them from spreading, maybe burn them up or whatever. So we've got, a, we've got a, quite a mess in this world today. And we're responsible for a lot of it because the things in, in some of the things in the environment that we need to get rid of, they wanted to protect. And, you know, God put these pestilence here. He says there's going to be pestilence. And He tells that in, back in the Old Testament that He will destroy certain things with pestilence that He sent. So, when you run across those things, if they're a detriment to man and if they're uh, causing you trouble... You better get out of the way or get rid of them or do something. I know guys that won't even swat a fly. They'll be eating all over them. They won't even swat a fly. I had a family down here below the racetrack. They had beautiful horses down there. I won't call names or anything. But they would not let this man that was taking care of the horses spray the barn. Just let the flies eat up everybody. You couldn't even walk out there. they just swarm on you because they didn't, didn't want to... Didn't want to have any uh, insect spray or anything out there. Well, some things, if you let get control of you, they'll take control of you. And man is supposed to be smarter than that. We said he was the highest of God's intelligence, and he ought to know when something's causing a problem and do something about it, right? All right, anyway, the worship. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne. That's why we said that we're going to show you now God the Son taking from the Father. Even though we said you could not separate the Godhead. Remember? You cannot separate the Godhead. But chapter 4 basically shows us the throne of God. And chapter 5 will show us the Son of God taking uh, from the right hand of Him that sits on the throne uh, later on and receiving on down a scroll that reveals the last things or the things of the, of the tribulation period. But anyway, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now here's a scroll or a seven sealed uh, book. You know, this seven sealed book contains the judgments for this earth Proceeding Christ's coming in power and great glory and the beginning of His reign. He comes in Revelation chapter 19 back to this earth. You'll find Him coming back from heaven. And you'll find that He comes back. If you, Well, I always have to go and show you, but in Revelation 19 it says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him, 
set upon him was called faithful and true. That's Christ. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Christ is coming. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He's crowned. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. It all identifies Christ coming in power and great glory. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, the righteousness of the saint. Goes on down verse 15. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress. Now look, of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I could go on. But you see, he is coming then. But before he comes, he's going to take this seven sealed book and he's going to show you from chapter 5, he takes it. In chapter 6, he's going to start opening the seals of this scroll or this book. It's called a book here, but in those days they had a scroll. A roll. And let me try to describe it. it. It's seven seals. So what you what they did, it was written in such a fashion that when the first was written, it was a little seal was put on the edge of the roll, the scroll, like this. And then the next was written in another seal until seven were written. And it was on the front and the back side. So that as you read, as the first seal was open the way it was prepared, is that you would read the first events. And when you broke that second seal, you'd read the second step of events. And when you get so far, and then you'd have to turn it over and read on the back side, but you'd still have to break a seal, and you'd, you'd read some more of the events. So it was written on both sides. And it was so arranged that when one seal was broken, you could, you could read only from that seal till you got to the second seal. And before you could read... Under the second seal, on the edge of that scroll, or roll, you would have to break that seal and go on. And that's the way it was arranged. Now later on, they had, they had books that were, uh, the paper was cut, and it was laced together so that you had it uh, kind of laced at one edge, and it was written on both sides. But they did not have that uh, means of doing it then. They didn't use that means at that particular time. But they used the scroll. Or the roll. But it's still called a book. The seven sealed book. A book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. Now then, in verse uh, 2 it says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? <clears throat> Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man look at this. In heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. God searched all of heaven, all of earth, and the ones that were dead and beyond, in the uh, underworld. There was no, no one anywhere, no man was ever found, there was no creature able that would qualify to take this scroll and open the seals. What a dilemma. Man was not good enough. Even the heavenly angels were not good enough because they couldn't identify with man. That's why Jesus came from heaven. 
You know, if an angel could have saved us, Jesus wouldn't have had to come down, would He? But angels could not identify with men because they hadn't gone through the same same sufferings and the same life. And so God sent His only begotten Son and He took upon Him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of, of men. A man, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So that's where we are. Jesus came for a purpose. To identify Himself with us and to save us as the Son of God. Alright, look at this. In verse 3, And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. There was no one worthy. And I wept, John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Man was not even worthy to look at it. Let alone open it. Or to read it. And in verse 5, And one of the elders, one of these elders, the elders represents the redeemed. But one of them said, Listen, you know I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I'm one, one of the redeemed in glory. And he says, I know who's worthy. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. The line of the tribe, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now we have no trouble identifying who the line of the tribe of Judah is. If you go back into the book of Genesis, chapter forty-nine, and by the way, when you find folks trying to to expound the Bible to you, you get you say, "Prove it to me, friend." It's your it's your right to say, "I want to know where you find." You, we could just come up with this, the line of the tribe of Judah, and say it represents Christ. Someone might say, "Well, it represents someone else." But why argue about it when you have the proof? Go back to Genesis forty-nine, verse nine and ten. It says, "Judah is a lion's whelp." From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He cast, couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Verse 10 now. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Almost any Bible scholar will tell you that this 10th verse represents Christ. It's pointing to a promise of, of, the, of, of Jesus. So He is the, the scepter. Remember we just quoted in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 where uh, God said to His Son, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1, a part of that passage we quoted to you. So, uh, here, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah was... Uh, one of the sons of Jacob. Judah means praise, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, Shiloh is the one it is prophesied, uh, come, and unto him, unto him, not to, unto it, there is a place named Shiloh, but it says unto him, not a place, but unto a person. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now you go back into Revelation 5 and verse 5 again, look. He's not only the line of the tribe of Judah, and we have many more scriptures, but this will give you an indication where you can find the proof text for it. Uh, 10 verse 3 will show you the same thing. 
in the in the book of Revelation, ten verse three. Let me read this for you. Ten verse three says this. Well, no, I have the wrong. That was uh, I have the wrong reference. I'm sorry. But anyway, let's go on because I'm I'm not sure of that reference. Uh, notice it says the root of David. You have a Revelation five verse five. He's not only the line of the tribe of Judah, but he's the root of David. Hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Who's the root of David? If you look in the last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of Revelation, twenty-second chapter, just flip on over to the back page. It says in verse sixteen, "I Jesus, look here." Who's the root of David? I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. By the way, this is the only time you find the word church or or churches since the third chapter of this book. So the church is not seen during that tribulation period. Because the redeemed, the saints, are already with the Lord. So he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Now look. What does he say? I am the root and the offspring of David. There you have it. Jesus says, I'm that root and offspring of David. Back to 5 verse 5. He only says that, but he says, I'm the bride and morning star. But in 5 verse 5, he says, the root of David. So that's Jesus. Uh, Jesus was the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David, according to the flesh. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Listen carefully. Romans 1, 3 and 4, if you want to copy it down, but you can just listen, not turn. It says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4 shows us His humanity and His deity. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was born of a woman. But He was declared to be the Son of God. And the resurrection was the proof of it. You have His deity. You have His Godhead. Uh, Revelation 5, verse 5. So what do you find? And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, have prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Our time is gone, but we're going to see in verse 6 a drastic change. In verse 6, John looked for a lion, but he saw a lamb. A lamb. L-A-M-B. The word lamb is used at least uh, 29 times in the book of Revelation. This very word that's used for lamb. 